Amen. Okay, we can let the uh, children be dismissed for junior church. And I'd like you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. Gospel of Luke chapter 10, we're going to look at a relatively familiar story this morning as we wrap up our discussion on looking at our role as Christians in our community in light of the election. The things I want to say to you just real quickly are these. As you go to vote this week, I just want to simply encourage you to do this. Vote your convictions. Okay, Vote what you believe as a follower of Jesus Christ. Beyond that, however, I want to say this. Live out your convictions with equal passion. Okay? Vote them. Let them direct what you do on Tuesday in regards to the future of your country. But more importantly than that, I think, is that we need to be people that live out our convictions. So voting is part of being salt and light, being the influence that God has allowed us to be in the country that we live in, where we have the right to vote and and elect uh, officials and people like our president. But I think sometimes we may get caught up in and become more passionate about political things than we do about Christian living. And so this morning, my desire is to challenge us to really be, from this text, salt and light. So to start, I want to say this. I want to say that Christianity often gets a bad rap, okay? Um, Has Christianity historically been responsible for things that are sad and grievous? Okay? If your young person goes to a secular college today, they're going to hear a lot of things that have been done in the name of God that are sad and very regrettable. Okay? And sometimes we need to be honest and say, in the history of Christianity, there have been things that have been done in the name of God that are not things that any of us can be proud of, okay? That's just a fact, okay? And it's typically this. When organized religion and government join hands together to rule, usually things go south. Why? Because most of what is happening in those settings in regard to Christianity cannot be defined as biblical Christianity, okay? I would argue that biblical Christianity is responsible for many of the powerful and wonderful things that have happened in our world. Academically, educationally, in terms of medicine, many areas, biblical Christianity has been at the forefront and leading the charge in change, and well should. Okay, it's true in regards to the overthrow of slavery, uh, in the issue of civil rights, religious leaders took, took the, the, the charge in those things. So biblical Christianity, when it is doing what God has called it to do, is a very powerful influence in our world and is responsible for much of the good that has taken place in the world that we live in. So I think at times we need to kind of rescue Christianity from the the bad rap or reputation that it has. But sometimes that reputation is present because we are failing to live as salt and light. We are failing to be the people that God has called us to be. Okay? So that said, I think I could argue this morning very clearly from Scripture that the biblical gospel and the teachings of Jesus always prompt and promote and encourage and in some levels command a passion, a growing passion for justice and generous living. Okay, a biblical Christianity, or let me say it this way, a Christianity that is not passionate about generosity and justice cannot call itself biblical Christianity. Okay, it may be Christianity with a small c, but biblical Christianity will always be marked by a passion for generosity and justice. Okay, as you read through the life of Christ, what do you find? You find a man who is constantly reversing the order of things, isn't he? He's relieving the poor, he's raising the dead, he's healing the sick, he's spending time with those that struggle. He's being generous and loving. That is the nature and essence of the life of Christ. And I think that we could argue biblically that that should be the nature and essence of what we are doing as Christians. This command to love others and to be generous emerges out of the Old Testament very clearly. Luke, Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 17 says this, Do not bear a grudge, but love your neighbor as yourself. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. 
But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Paul would later summarize in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Here's what he said. He says, let no debt remain outstanding except the debt, the obligation to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the whole law. Okay, which is to say what? When Christians are acting, acting in generous and just ways, what are we doing? We are actually binding up all of the commands of God and living them out by acting in love and just ways towards our neighbors and, in this case, towards our enemies. Paul then says the commandments, and then he lists a number of them. He says they are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So we can go all the way back to the book of Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We can read it in the Psalms. We can read it in Proverbs. We can read it in, in the prophets. You can read it in the Gospels. You can read it in the epistles. There is a, a responsibility that God has given the church to love others in a way that sets the church apart from the rest of our culture. We should be defined by and distinguished by, marked by, a generosity and love for others. And the question I would like us to ask ourselves this morning is, is that a distinguishing mark in my life? Is my love for others something that sets me apart, that marks me, that causes me to be seen in contrast to those around me? And not simply a love for people that are needy, but a love that is directed towards enemies. Is my life characterized by that kind of love, because I think that's the kind of influence that we as a church and we as individuals in the body of Christ should be exercising in our world, because it is central to biblical ethics, a love for those in need. In Leviticus chapter 10, verse 25, the Bible says this. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. That is to kind of put him in the fire a bit to find out what he was really made of, to find out what he really believed and what he really was all about. So this expert in the law says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, basic thrust is this. What must I do to gain a, a relationship eternally with God? How can I be made right with God in spite of my sinfulness? Why does the man ask this question? Why does he come to Jesus and say, Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? And what might be the test that he is seeking to apply to Jesus? And I think we could argue from the life of Christ that the problem the Pharisees had with him was that he was a friend of sinners. And his love for needy people, his love for sinners with bad reputations caused them to question what he really believed about the law of God. Because how did the Pharisees live? They lived a self-righteous, hypocritical life and lived separate from those with serious moral needs. That's what good religious people did in the day of Christ. Jesus comes on the scene and what is he? He is known as, reputation, the friend of sinners. And that throws a wrench in the gears for these religious people. He's a rabbi, he's a teacher, he reads the law in synagogues, but he hangs out with sinners. They couldn't get it to work. And so when the man comes with this question, I think at one level what he's really trying to find out is this. Does this teacher Jesus take the law of God seriously? Or is he, by the way he's acting, diminishing and negating in some ways the law and directives of God? Is he really a valid teacher? Jesus wisely says to him in verse 27, or in verse 26, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The man gives this reply. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. So what does the man do? He retreats back to the Old Testament to the central ethic of biblical Christianity, which is what? Love God and love your neighbor, and when you do that, you are fulfilling the entire demand of the law. Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly. Meaning, okay, you said what must I do to have eternal life? Well, here's what you must do. 
Love God and love your neighbor. How? Exhaustively. Do it all the time. Okay? And I think at that point, and I, when I show the gospel to people, I often retreat to this command to show that I myself am a sinner. Sharing the gospel of grace with them a sinner. I always ask this question. I said to them, do you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength all the time? Okay? On that note, what happens? I'm falling away saying, you know what? I don't measure up. If a relationship with God is achieved by performance, by measuring up to that standard, I certainly am a man who falls short. Jesus says, do this and you will live. The idea is this. Obey them fully and you'll have a relationship with God. Now that's a heavy burden to put on someone, isn't it? What do religious people rely on? Religious people tend to rely on their morality, and the legal details of the law. In Matthew 23, 23, Jesus is pointing this out to religious leaders. He says to them, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin. And the idea is that they would literally count out the seeds, the flex, to make sure that one out of every ten went to God so that they could say, We are law keepers. We tithe. Therefore, we're good. Jesus says this then, though, in condemnation. He says, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Which are what? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Justice towards those who have been abused and misused. Mercy towards those in need. Generosity towards those who lack. Jesus says, these are the more important matters of the law. Whether or not you get it right in counting out your seeds doesn't matter. Now, what, where was this man coming from? This man was coming from the perspective that said that a meticulous adherence to the law earns a place with God. That's the religious mindset, isn't it? Have a high degree of morality and you have a relationship with God. Be meticulous in your understanding and keeping of God's law and you have a relationship with God. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Good answer. Do that and you will live. This man, however, verse 29, for some reason feels a, a pinch in what Jesus says. Jesus says, well, you do all that and you're fine. I would love to know the tone of Christ's response. Is it kind of a, well, do that and you can live as if you really could? Seeking to justify himself, verse 29, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, here's what I think is happening. I think at some level, this man is shaken by the demands that Jesus has just put upon him. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind fully. Love your neighbor as yourself fully. And if you do that, then you can get into heaven by your performance. Something comes over this man that causes him to ask a question in which he seeks to reduce the broadness of the command. The command is overwhelming. And any honest individual looking at the law of God would have to say, I try to keep the law of God, but I find myself unsuccessful in this meticulous following of the law on an honest day. He thought he was saved by his diligence. Jesus blows the cover off of that. And so what does he do? He seeks to shrink the demand of the law so that he can justify the unloving behavior that he knows is present in his heart. And folks, is that not true for all of us? Ask yourself this question. Do I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do I love my neighbor? Do I love my wife? Do I love my siblings? Do I love them more than or as I love myself? That is, think about it, it's, it's, it's heavy. That's what this man just said. Jesus said, well, do that and you'll live. And he's like, oh, wait a minute. Who's really my neighbor? Why? Because the Pharisees had people that they would not love. They did not spend time with, with well-known sinners. And when Jesus comes on the scene loving people like that, it blew the cover off their hypocrisy and their lack of love. And see, the law that this man was seeking to justify himself by was actually the law that would condemn him. In Galatians 2, Paul, who was formerly a Pharisee and a meticulous law keeper, 
He said, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And by the works of the law, no flesh can be justified. So he's talking to a man who thinks that he has a right relationship with God because of his performance, because of his meticulous law keeping. And all of a sudden he feels exposed. He feels naked in light of the response of Jesus. And so he asks for a clarification. He seeks to shrink the demand of the law by saying something like this. Yes, that's true, but some are non-neighbors. Some people don't deserve love, right, Jesus? That's kind of what he's saying. The response of Jesus is to tell the story that to most of us is exceedingly familiar. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. And it's an interesting story because it really is about a powerful role reversal. You see, loving one's neighbor in this story is seen as active support for the hurting, the poor, and the disadvantaged. For people that are in circumstances of serious struggle. That's where active love is seen. So I want to ask you this morning as we look at this real quickly to allow the familiar to provoke you to think about And to raise the value of doing love and good deeds. Okay, just just to honestly say to yourself, when I'm in this kind of a circumstance, do I love like Christ wants me to love? Not as a means of gaining salvation, but as a means of expressing towards God deep appreciation for the affection that has come from one who should have judged me and killed me. He died for me. Okay, I want you to see how this story uncovers That very simple truth. Verse 30. In reply to the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells a story. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And and I'm going to just put this question out there up front. Who is this man? What is his ethnic identity? Okay, if he lives anywhere between Jerusalem and Jericho... What country does he live in? He lives in Israel. In all likelihood, what then is his ethnic background? He's Jewish. Okay? Very important part of the story often overlooked. Okay? So a man, presumably a Jew, was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is a journey from from 2,500 feet above sea level to 800 feet below sea level at the Dead Sea. A treacherous, curvy road that winds, kind of, a, kind of a snake kind of trail that goes all the way down to Jericho. A dangerous road, typically run over by bandits. So the story would, would, the story would resonate with the people as, yeah, we know that happens all the time. So he's on this journey. He falls into the hands of robbers. He is stripped of his clothing, beat, and left half dead. Okay, so a Jewish man comes into a very serious and sad set of circumstances. What happens next? A priest happened to be going down the same road. A man of the same ethnic class. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Okay, so what happens? Two religious men... Who would, if you said, hey, what's the law? Well, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law. And where are they coming from? Church. Right? They're coming from church on their way back home. Where they have worshipped God and they've loved God. And now they're on their way back home to live out the truth that they've just proclaimed. And what do they do? They see the man who is of their same ethnic class. And what do they do? They go by. Two of them. Though religious and though of the same social, economic, racial background. Okay, and the twist in the story comes next. It says, so too a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, and this is interesting because three times now you find this. People see the man in need, two walk by, one stops and practices active concern for a needy man. He was coming by, he saw him, and he took pity on him. The word here is the word for compassion, often used of Jesus when he looks at the multitudes 
in their need, what is he? He is filled with compassion because he knows that he is going to go active in his love and concern for them. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, medicinal purposes here. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins gave them to the innkeeper and said, look after him and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Why is this story told by Jesus? Well, I think it's to point out the difference between true believers and religious people. Religious people can justify disobedience because they, they have a list of things that they have to do. And if they do those things, they're okay with God. All right? the, the Samaritan is who? He's an outcast. Okay? He is a natural enemy to the Jewish people, and the Jewish people are a natural enemy to him. If you want to understand it clearly, you would say something like this. The Jewish people are the in crowd. And the Samaritans are what? They're the outcast. They're the ones that the Jews sneered at, that they rejected, treated as traitors, as renegades. Okay, they were the hated class. The haters were the Jewish people who had the law of God, but did not have a personal relationship with God. Okay, and the way that you know that is by how they respond in this story. What is, why is Jesus telling this story? He's telling this story because it depicts the truth. That often the religious people didn't practice active concern for the needy people. And Jesus is seeking to uncover this for this man so that he can see the depth of his true need. He saw him. He had compassion on him. He gave emergency treatment for him. He transported him. He paid his expenses and lavished grace upon him. Okay, that's the essence of the story. What was he willing to do? He was willing to assume risk to care for this man. The other religious leaders were unwilling to assume any risk and were unwilling to practice active love and concern towards this man. Jesus then in verse 36 lets us know why he told the story. Which of these do you think was a neighbor? Which goes back to what? It goes back to the man's reciting of the Old Testament commandment. What's the law? What summarizes it? Love God and love your neighbor. Show active concern for those in need. So when Jesus says, who is the neighbor here? The man who is one of the religious elite. He's like the Levite. He's like the, the teachers of the law that are going down the road to Samaria. What does he see? He sees himself. He sees that Jesus is saying that there are people within the religious community who do not have a true relationship with God. Why? Because they don't practice an active concern for those in need. Who do you think was a neighbor? Who do you think obeyed the central ethical command of the Old Testament? The expert in the law replied with a fascinating deletion from the story. He says, uh, the one who showed him mercy. Meaning, what did Jesus do? It's checkmate. It's checkmate. And all of a sudden, what could this man see? What he should have seen was that he was a man who professed obedience to the law of God, who said, I keep that. But Jesus has ripped the mask of hypocrisy off his face by saying what? You walk by people with serious needs and you, you, you pare down this word neighbor. You make neighbor people that are deserving of help. When the Bible makes neighbor people that are undeserving of help. The key to the story is not how he loved is, is it important? Yes, I mean, there, there are certain lessons. We could spend a lot of time going through it. His extravagant sacrifice, the risk that he took to stop where bandits were prepped, all the things that happened. All of those are very powerful. The what he did is exceedingly powerful in this story. But the, 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 the salient point of the story is not what he did, but who he loved. Who does the Samaritan love in this story? 
He loves the in crowd while he is an outcast. So what did Jesus just do? He just inflated the definition of neighbor, right? Your neighbor is the person that may have abused you in the past, that may have, have, have treated you with hatred or a lack of concern or a lack of love or with disregard. The Samaritan stops and help a man, helps a man that he could have trampled on. And if in the story he trampled on him, the religious leader would have said, I totally understand that. Do you see? So the, the, the thrust of what he does, yeah, it's powerful. But the person that he loves makes it more powerful. He loved a natural born enemy. He loved someone who would sneer at him and criticize him. He lavishes love on him. This text is a call to, and it is also a definition of basic discipleship. It is the essence of what it is to be a Christian, because it is the essence of being like Jesus. What are the principles that emerge out of it real quickly? First of all, I think this, caring for others, generous living, entails risk and sacrifice. Okay, if I'm going to be a true Christian who loves God and loves others, I need to be willing to entertain the risk of generous sacrifice. Okay, now... When will we do that? Well, we would do it when we see someone in need. I mean, that's what this story is about. Somebody walks by. There's a person there on the road in need. Two people walk by. One stays and does the right thing. One stays and loves his neighbor as himself. Can we be honest this morning? Can we be honest and say that most of us, if somebody has a need that, that, that has kind of fallen into their life, just devastation and destruction, no fault of their own. Most of us are quite willing to help them, right? Isn't that true? You hear someone just calamity falls in their life, just trouble, disaster just like falls in and, and just you're just like, ah, oh, man, I just feel so bad for them. What are, we're, we're quick to rush and help that person, aren't we? Jonathan Edwards spoke on this text in the 1700s in New England. And when he spoke on this text, He was addressing the issue of growing poverty and an increasing social stratification of his hometown. And he told him this story to encourage people to love their neighbors as themselves, to act like the Good Samaritan. And what he did in in, in the preaching of this sermon is he addressed various objections that people have to generosity. Okay? Meaning the things that might come into our mind. You think of the, the men that were on the road down to Jericho, saw a man in need, might have thought, you know, it might be too costly. I may not have time. It may be dangerous to help this man. All kinds of reasons for why we shouldn't do what in our heart we feel what? Compelled to do. And certainly, I think most of us can identify with that. Most of us allow caution to limit active concern for needy people. What are some of the cautions? Some of the cautions are, we have needs of our own. And the risk of giving from our resources may leave us in need as well. What are we really saying? What we're saying is, I'm going to wait until I have enough. And once I have enough, then I'm going to help other people meet their needs. Here's the thing you'll never find people doing. You'll never find people defining what enough is. Right? Right? I'll help people. When I have enough, I'll do more. Well, how much is enough so that you can know that you really will do more? Do you see? So sometimes we don't get involved because we don't want to risk the loss because we're not sure if we're going to be able to meet our needs. Another excuse that sometimes we use is this. They're not really destitute yet. They're not groveling yet. Needs are not extreme enough. I think Jesus would say to us, well, when do you meet your needs if you're going to love your neighbor as yourself? Another objection that we give is they may be ungrateful. And the answer is, yeah, you know what, you're probably right. 
But does that excuse me from the demand of the law? To love my neighbor as myself. When did Jesus seek Tim Hoff? You know when he saw me? He saw me when I was a stranger. Wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. He didn't wait till I got my act together. While we were yet sinners. Rebels against the creator. He died for us. And sometimes we think, well, they brought this poverty on themselves. Their poverty is the result of bad character. And if they would get their character straightened out, then I might be willing to help them. Okay, and you just have to, you have to ask yourself, how does that kind of an excuse get me off of obedience? Certainly, Jesus Christ moved in our direction before we could do anything. He loved us in our sin. So if we're always waiting until people will respond appropriately to our gifts or handle them properly, we're probably never going to do anything to help people. In this story, what happens? The man sees a need, and he doesn't pull out his calculator. The man just starts to meet the need. In the same way that Jesus Christ meets our needs. You see, I think the gospel of grace crushes the objections that most of us have towards generosity and giving to the poor and needy. Because in the gospel of grace, what happens? Jesus Christ reaches out to me to meet my desperate needs. In spite of all the objections that he could have about my life. And about my resistance. And about how unloving I might be down the road. Or will be. And he seeks us. And he loves us. In spite of what? In spite of our sinfulness. In spite of knowing that we will grow cold towards his love at times. He still lavishes amazing grace and love on us so the first thought is that caring for others entails risk and sacrifice and those risks and sacrifice are best exemplified by jesus on the cross second thought is this active concern for others is an essential expression of faith of what it is to be truly religious you see the man that Jesus was talking to was what? He was the teacher of the law. He wore the badge. I am a religious man. Okay, he, to use the analogy from this week, he wore the costume. When he walked in, everybody knew who he was. He was clearly identifiable as a religious man. But when the religious person walks down this, the road to Jericho and comes upon a person in need, what happens the costume doesn't change the heart. The external proclamation doesn't evidence true conversion within. Active concern is an essential expression. Folks, here's what I mean. If your heart has been converted by the gospel of Christ, you will be a generous person. That's what Jesus is saying to this man. The Ruler, the expert in the law. He was saying, you may be an expert in the knowledge of the law, but your heart has not been changed, therefore you do not live the law of God. Okay, active compassion is the essential expression of saving faith. It is a central command that defines true Christ followers. In James chapter 1 and verse 27, James says this, Religion that God accepts as pure and faultless, meaning as true, is to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Which is to say what? True religion, true faith in God that converts and that changes always will find in it coming out of itself some type of expression of love towards those that are needy. In James 2, he becomes more direct. He says, what good is it, brothers, if a man says, I have faith? That is to say what the religious young ruler is saying. I am religious. What good is it, brothers, if a man claims to have faith and has no deeds? Can that profession of faith save him? And then what does he do? He goes directly to specific physical needs as expressions of gospel love. 
He says, can that faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If, you want, if one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about his physical need. What good is that kind of faith? What good is the costume of religion if it never works out in active change? James goes on to say in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, by change, is in fact dead. In other words, folks, if as you listen to the call of the gospel, to generous living, to Christ-like love, and, and, and you, can, you can sit back and resist it and never get involved and never do it. What's the question I need to ask myself? I need to say to myself, do, do I truly have the heart of Christ? Has there been a heart transplant that has taken place for me? Is there evidence of active compassion and caring for others? In Acts chapter 2 and verse 4, the early history of the Christian church is amazing. Because these people are converted and what happens? Believers experience a radical reorientation towards what? Towards their possessions. They start, here's the way it's said. They start to live as people that don't really even own anything. Meaning that's how radical the reorientation towards possessions was for them. They lived as if what they had was not theirs to demand, to hold, to keep. But the, there was a freedom that the grace of Christ had brought them. A freedom that the love of Christ that forgave them had brought them. They were changed in relationship to what? How do you know they were changed? They started to sell what they had and give it to others. They didn't claim what was in their house as their own. They weren't tight-fisted. Okay, like our children when they're small and they say, mine, and we say to them, no, don't say that. Okay? Said, no, there's something wrong with that. And then we do it in more sophisticated ways, right? In Acts 2 and Acts 4, what happened? When the gospel of grace came that saved you out of your sinfulness and rebellion, out of your moral bankruptcy, what did it do? It changed how you lived. How do you know? It changed the relationship to material possessions. I was going to tell you something. As I read through this, study through this, preach this stuff, I, 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 I'm asked, God, stretch me. Show me how to really live this life so that the faith that we have is not merely a profession, a costume that we put on. It is true. It is identifiable. It is visible. That was the reputation of the early church. That whatever they had was available. If there was a true need, they would give it. But I think what we tend to do is entertain the objections and justify disobedience. Okay, I don't think it's that we don't want to obey God. I think it's that, number one, we don't see how valuable this principle of generosity and justice is in Scripture. And so our objections kind of kill any impulse and desire. And it never works out into action. I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. Let the prompting of the Spirit of God in relationship to generosity and justice, let it cause you to move. Let, 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 the, let the tide of that weight of God's love, let it move you to become different. So that we become people that are known very evidently by the fact that they love people. They are generous. They do give to people. And folks, I thank God for this in our church family. There's a lot of good things that happens through this church in relationship to the ministry in Appalachia, in relationship to Samaritan's Purse, the Hubbing Home, the Karenet Center. A lot of you are involved in various ways giving. Please do not take what I'm saying as criticism. Okay, take it as encouragement to be like the Good Samaritan who loved someone who was undeserving. And let it, let it kind of prompt within our hearts a, a greater desire to love like God loves. I think the third principle that emerges from this text and from other texts in Scripture is this. Caring for the needy is loving God. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you love me, what will you do? You're going to keep my commandments. And what are his commandments? To love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. Folks, think about this. Loving others, loving the needy, is in the Bible described as loving God himself. And this to me is one of the most 
like amazing and profound truths. Proverbs 14.31 says this. He who shows contempt for the poor. What is contempt? Contempt is what the religious leaders on the road to Jericho showed towards the man who was beaten. What is contempt? Contempt is, yeah, see your need, be warmed and filled, gone on my way. Too busy, too risky, too expensive. That's contempt. Proverbs says, he who shows contempt for the poor shows contempt for their maker. For their maker. So if I see a real need and prompted to do something about that need and refuse, shut it down with my list of objections, who am I really showing contempt for? I'm showing contempt for the one that prompted me in my heart to do something about it. You see, if God, God prompts you, do something. You hear about a valid need and you say, okay. And you shut it down with objections. Who have you shut down? Who have you ignored? Well, you said, well, I've ignored this person. No, you haven't. You've ignored God. Show contempt for the poor. You show contempt for your maker. Proverbs 7, 19, verse 17 says this. He who is kind to the poor, you know the rest of this? Lends to the Lord. He who is kind to the poor, lends to the Lord. He will reward him. Which is to say what? God takes your active compassion for needy people personally. And folks, I understand this. For some people, they have extra money. They can give extra money. Some people can give extra time. Some people have extra talents. They can give them. When you do that for needy people, what is God saying? God is saying, thank you. He was kind to the poor, lends to the Lord. What is he saying? He also says this, he will reward him. God is good for it. He doesn't miss those acts of love that you pour out that no one knows about. Time spent caring for others that no one knows about. What is God saying? I take that personally. I will enrich your life and I will increase your opportunities to love others like that. That's the promise of God. He says, I see your compassion, and I am good for it. Probably the most convicting passage in Scripture is Matthew chapter 25 in regards to this idea that caring for the needy is loving God. What happens in Proverbs, the passage that I just read to you? God identifies with the poor, right? If you show contempt for them, you show contempt for me. So God is identifying with them, how? Symbolically. To ignore them is to ignore me. You ignore my prompting in, my, in your heart to love them and serve them and meet their needs. If you ignore that, you're really ignoring me, not just them. Okay? When you come to Matthew 25, you find that Jesus identifies with the poor and marginalized in a very literal way. Okay? Listen to what it says. It says, then the king shall say to those on his right hand, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. This is the king. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes. You clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will say, and this is, the, the idea here is one of utter dismay, right? The righteous hear the king saying to them, you did this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this. You did this to me. The righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, and feed you, or thirsty, and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger, and invite you in, or needing clothing, and clothe you? When did we see you sick, or in prison, or go to the, when? They're, they're mystified, right? They're saying, wait, how can you say we did that to you? And what does the king say? The king says this, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Folks, that is stunning. What does it say? God takes your acts of love and generosity, the gifts of your time, helping people get up off the ground and get back on their feet. God takes it personally. That is powerful. And that should motivate us. 
Loving the poor is loving God. Showing contempt for them is showing contempt for God. I don't want to show contempt for God. I want to love God. Because he changed my life. But here's the question. And Tim Keller kind of pushes this out for us a little bit. In answer to the question, when do we see Jesus like this? When do we see him like this? Naked, thirsty, think. On the cross. What is he doing on the cross? He's taking the penalty for my sin. As a naked, thirsty, struggling, hurting, suffering man. And here's what the Bible says. If God so loved us, then we ought to love our brothers and our neighbors. So what is it that compels sacrificial, selfless love? What drives it? God's love for you in your moral bankruptcy and poverty. That's what motivates our love for others. In in the coming of Jesus, in the incarnation, what happened? God identified with the poor and marginalized. He identified with us in the depths of our sin and brokenness. Your neighbor is anyone in need. And Jesus stretches it and says, even if they are an enemy. The key to the story is what? A Jew is the victim. The rejected group is helping the in crowd. The man who could have trampled this Jewish man in his pain reached out and loved him. That's the reversal of this story. That is the heart of gospel love and generosity. That even if someone has injured you, has rejected you, has antagonized you, biblical love says what? Love your neighbor as yourself and take that love further. Love your enemies. Now you're looking at me saying, really? (laughs) How do you do that? I'm going to tell you something. You will not find motivation for that kind of love in your flesh. You will not. If you dig down deep, you won't, what you give to them will not be true love. (laughs) It's only when you dig down deep in the gospel and understand that in the cross, in the incarnation, Jesus Christ identified with us and identified with the worst of us becoming sin for us. It's only there that you will understand and experience a love that is mind-blowing and amazing and life-changing. And he says to you and I, go, love the person in need, love your neighbor, love your enemy. Because in the gospel, you are loved by someone who owes you the opposite. I don't deserve love from Christ. What do I deserve from Christ? Judgment. Condemnation. What did the Jew laying on the road beaten deserve from the Samaritan? To be trampled. To be rejected. What did he get? He got grace. What do people around us deserve? What do the hurting really deserve? What does the person who is in poverty because of bad decisions deserve? You know what they deserve? They deserve love. They deserve generosity. And when the church starts acting like that, we will not have to wear a costume that says, I am a religious man. They will know we are Christians by our love. I want to encourage you this morning, pray. Ask God what it means to love your neighbor. Ask God what he would like you to relinquish in order that you may love others. Ask God to free you from the bondage of material things so that you can practice a love that is extravagant and that is motivated by his extravagant love. Realize this as we close. Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary did not take a risk. Okay, he didn't take a risk. He paid a price. And he came to do that, to set you and I free. So that our hearts could be changed, so that we could be his representatives here. Who was he? He was the friend of sinners. What did he do? He poured out generosity and love and justice upon needy people over and over and over and over again. And he says to his disciples at the end of his life, after the resurrection, he says, what you saw me do, 
Go do it. May God help us as a church family, as individuals, to go. And don't wait for the church corporately to do it. Okay? If every person in this church starts doing generosity, justice, loving neighbors, loving enemies, if everyone in our church starts doing it, guess what? We corporately are a church then that is doing it. Okay? Now, we identify with specific needs in our church family. We support organizations that show the love of Christ and spread the gospel of Christ. That's our commitment as a church family. But the way that we really do it is when we as individuals go from this place saying, you know what, God? Really? Make me a generous man. I mean, truly, truly change my heart. Break me free from this ownership picture. Let me be a steward. Let me be a steward. And let's go change our world. Okay, give of your time. Give of your resources. Give of your emotions. Sometimes you know what people need. Sometimes people just need you to come. They just need you to be there. Okay, Thursday morning, 4.30 in the morning, I get this. Four times. You kind of wake up slowly. What, what is that? Person, I get down to the bottom of the steps and see police lights out on the street, ambulances, and I'm like, okay. Driver of the ambulance said this. He said, your neighbor just wants you to come over. Her husband died. She's alone. Okay. You know what she wanted? You know what she needed? She just needed someone. That's all. She thinks, she thinks I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread since Thursday morning. What did I do? It's not rocket science. I don't say this to praise, but I mean, come on. All of us would do that, right? But what I want you to know is just that the act of going. And being with her in a room where her husband is laying dead meant something to her. Didn't give her anything? But just a little bit of inconvenience? And just being there. Folks, you don't have to be rich to make a difference. You don't have to be wealthy to make a difference. Sometimes people just need someone. It's like you're prompted and you think, oh, you know, I thought I should have gone. We say this to each other all the time. Oh, I thought about it. I didn't. Can we stop doing that? Can we kill the objections and start to say, all right, Lord. And I, I've got areas in my life where I need to do this. And it comes clear as I've been preaching through this stuff. Let's go make a difference. Let's love by the power of the Spirit of God. Because we can't do this on our own. Father, help us.